G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. We're going to take some time through this hour to understand the crisis that's going on. It is so complex. No one really feels as though they have the ultimate solution. Uh, We're going to talk through those issues of what's going on in Syria, what's going on in Iraq. Our special guest through this hour is one of my favourite guests talking through these sorts of issues, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, a role that she has been doing for the past 16 years, and that included seven years where Elizabeth was Principal Researcher and Writer for the World Evangelical Alliance. She is an adjunct research fellow in the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths and recently was awarded an honorary doctorate at the Wittenberg Seminary in Canada. Her book called Turn Back the Battle is available in the Vision Christian Store and always enjoy getting Elizabeth Kendall's insights into what's going on in the Middle East and in other nations around the world. But Elizabeth Kendall, welcome along to 2020. Thanks for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, last time we were talking, we were on this topic too, talking about Syria, because it is still the biggest humanitarian disaster that's happening on the face of the earth. No one seems to have solutions for what's going on there. Christians caught like the meat in the sandwich, uh, being uh, obliterated in so many communities there uh, in the nation of Syria and there in northern Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, This has been something you have been following along, monitoring and and expressing your concerns about for a long, long time. Uh, yes, well, I've been watching religious freedom issues for, you know, going on 20 years now, and the situation has just deteriorated so much in the last, well, particularly in the last five to ten years, five years even. It's just everything's changed. And I can remember when I first got into this field, I'd be reporting on, you know, a, a violent attack against a person in a place, you know, whereas now we're looking at the genocide of whole peoples, uh, the genocide of, of Christian nations in the, in the birthplace and heartland of the early church. And uh, so everything's on a completely different scale these days. Well, it seems to me that there are a lot of people who are not very familiar with history who might be having their own feelings about what's going on in the Middle East. The idea that, well, isn't the Middle East all about Arabs? Isn't it all about Muslims? Why would we be worried about Christians there? Because, you know, isn't that just part of the Muslim world? But that's not the case, is it? Christians have been there in the Middle East for thousands of years. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, those... Those wrong views are fed largely by the media, which literally does not see the Christians there. It's as if they're invisible. They, they are like an invisible people, which is just such a tragedy because they are the indigenous people of the Middle East. Um, the, the Assyrians were there uh, right back into Old Testament times. You know, if you go back into your Bible and you, you read about the Assyrians and the great Assyrian Empire that at one stage you know, spanned pretty much the whole Middle East and down in, into Egypt even. And you read about Sennacherib coming up against Jerusalem. 
You read about Jonah going and witnessing to the Assyrians in Nineveh and how they repented. And, um, you know, the Assyrian people have, have been there for a long, long time. The, the Arabs are swept in in the 7th century, and that changed everything. And, and then the Turks came in, and, and things were even worse after the Turks came in. And ever since then, so ever since the 7th century, this, this uh, indigenous people, this nation that uh, was a great missionary-sending nation in the early church era, and the beating heart of the early church, really, uh, has this ever since the 7th century has been really struggling to survive. And what we have now in the Middle East, in, in Mesopotamia in particular, is really the remnant of a remnant of a remnant of a remnant. And they're just struggling to survive, to see if they're going to hold on and actually exist into the future. This is really serious, and it's quite amazing that the media gives this this incredibly enormous issue, uh, virtually no coverage at all. Well, let's talk about Australians for a few moments because while we're talking about Assyrians and having been there for thousands of years and all of that biblical history that's associated with uh, those Assyrians and with all of the events that go on in the Middle East, uh, here we are, our relatively young nation, uh, not long over 200 years old, and we have played some major roles in the Middle East, uh, going back to uh, to World War One, mm. and uh, and we're back there now. Our aeroplanes, our fighter jets, are in the skies and bombing Islamic State targets. Uh, Australians have a, a real connection and affinity with the Middle East as well. Well, that's right, and not only through our involvement in the Middle East, but also through some of the, the communities that have come to live here. We have quite a sizable um, Assyrian community in Australia, uh, and a Mandaean, quite a sizable Mandaean community in Australia too. Now, the Mandaeans are the uh, followers of John the Baptist, and they are baptised routinely, you know, repeatedly for forgiveness of sins. They're a pacifist people who have been really uh, annihilated or eliminated essentially from the Middle East now after, you know, after thousands of years. Um, so we have these connections as well. And you know, all, these, all these Mandaeans and, and Assyrians, thinking particularly now of the Assyrian community in Australia, they have family members you know, back in Iraq. And um, you know, I was speaking just recently to, to a, an Iraqi family from Mosul. They've been out here for uh, about uh, a number of years now, but their parents, so that this lady's parents were still in Mosul, and telling me about her her parents' home, uh, you know, the home she grew up in, the home that she loved to take her children back to to visit grandma and grandpa, the home they'd lived in ever since they got married. You know, it, they've been kicked out of it. They've been driven from Mosul. They're now, you know, IDPs in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And um, she was wondering how they were going to survive. And as soon as she mentioned her parents' home, she just dissolved into tears. Now, these people are in our congregations. They're here in our midst. And, you know, we can't pretend that these, these things don't matter. I think we really need to, to get a grip of it because we need to extend our love to our Assyrian brothers and sisters in Australia. And we need to be, um, we need to be giving. We need to be really helping uh, the Assyrians who are still in Iraq and in Syria. We need to be helping them.
Elizabeth, let's take a few moments to try and get a a sort of a big picture outlook on what's going on in Syria, what's going on perhaps even the the broader Middle East, but Syria is the central focus of what's happening with this conflict. Uh, Mention the Assyrian people, which they don't actually have a nation there, but uh, from right across that that, uh, area in the Middle East where all of the fighting is going on Mm. at the moment. Uh, Give us a, a quick overview because we're aware that Russia is now in this uh, this uh, turmoil, uh, a part of the complexity, perhaps even making it more complex than it's even been. Uh, but Russia's there in the mix. You've got America backing rebels trying to uh, get rid of uh, Bashar al-Assad, the Alawite leader in Syria. Uh, just give us a quick sort of overview uh, so that we can really get some meat on the skeleton, if you like, some uh, some flesh on the skeleton uh, of our understanding of what's going on there in Syria. Okay. Well, that's a really big ask. This <laughs> is so complex. Now, uh, in my, I've tried to do this in my book, the book that will be coming out uh, early next year. What you've basically got, if you, if you look at Mesopotamia, which is Syria and Iraq, is you've got a region that ever since World War I has been under Western mandates or then under Western-imposed rulers and then under military dictatorships, but it's always been um, a, a melting pot. Uh, they're mixed countries. Um, they're not like the surrounding great powers. So you've got the Arabs to the south, you've got the Turks to the north, and you've got the Persians to the east. They're the three powers that have all through, that have throughout history um, been the imperial powers of the region. You know, the Persians had first dominated the region, uh, then the Arabs dominated the region, and then the Turks dominated the region, right up to World War I. And that's when everything changed. And what we've got now is um, like, like British power faded, but American power came in. And America has been the hegemonic power. That is the power that really has influence over what happens in that area. And that's changed. So um, the American power has basically gone. The, the uh, balance of power has been overturned, just like a, like a volcano has been uncorked, really. And now you've got the three powers that are on that outside ring uh, all competing to, to, to have their way over Mesopotamia. That's just one layer of the conflict. Another layer of the conflict is the eternal battle between the Sunnis and the Shias. So the, the Sunnis that are mostly in the Arab camp and then the Shias that are mostly in the Persian camp, uh, there's an eternal conflict going on there. There's also two political alignments. There's what we call the axis of resistance, which is led by Iran and is mostly Shiite and promotes Islamic resistance and getting rid of the Americans from the Middle East and the Jews. That's the axis of resistance and it sort of runs from west to east. The other axis is the North-South-Turkey-Arab axis. And these, these leaders are Sunni. They're allied to America. Most of them have peace treaties with Israel. And uh, these two political axes are at war with each other. And if you put those two axes on the map, smack bang in the middle where they intersect, you will find the Christians of Nineveh and Mosul and northern Iraq. They're right, right there at the heart of the conflict. So um, I've, I've seen one analyst describe the conflict 
as, uh, as first and foremost uh, these powers needing to crush all the minorities that live in the Fertile Crescent, crush them and sweep them out of the way so they can go in and compete for power. And that's really what's happening. And, and it's absolutely brutal. And um, I, I think uh, to, suggest that, um, to suggest that this is not a, a major geopolitical shift would be, uh, would be ridiculous. And, of course, we have Russia supporting Assad and we have America supporting the, the Saudis and the Turks so we have an extra dimension to it again. So it's complex and it's messy and the Christians are just right there in the middle of it, stuck underneath it, and they're being obliterated. Well, I like the way that you actually talk about understanding the conflict by way of thinking of layers. Mm. Uh, there's a layer here and there's another layer of this conflict and another layer. And, uh, and of course, that, uh, that does help uh, to mentally get some sort of a picture as to just how complex it is. Let me ask you about uh, Islamic religion because as a... Uh, uh, adjunct research fellow with the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. Uh, you're certainly across this sort of thing. Uh, Islamists take no prisoners. And so when we hear of issues like genocide, it's because uh, people in, I guess, uh, these Islamic nations of the world realise that because of these uh, multi-thousand-year conflicts, they're not really, or they're not going to resolve those. So they have this idea of uh, of we have to actually cleanse uh, the space that we're in and get our enemies out, uh, and that's that's part of the issue, isn't it? Because they, there's not likely to be a peaceful solution where everyone shakes hands. No, well, and this is what's so ridiculous when you hear. You know, some of our politicians saying, you know, we have to have a political solution. We have to have a negotiated solution. And I sort of think, well, who are you going to negotiate with? Mm. Who are you negotiating with? The leading, the leading, the strongest forces on the ground at the moment, uh, or up till recently, have been Jaish el Fateh, which is an Al Qaeda linked group now pressing into the, through the north, and ISIS. So you've got Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, who are you going to negotiate with? Now, obviously, obviously, negotiations have their place, but these are militant groups. They are armies that are hell-bent on conquering Syria militarily, and they do need to be fought militarily, whether we like it or not. Um, and that's all there is to it, because you can't sit down and negotiate with, with Islamists. Islamists will tell you that, you know, they have a clear agenda and the agenda is to control the Middle East, to bring it under Islamic law, to have a caliphate across the Middle East. And for them, that is not negotiable. So uh, there has to be both a military solution and a negotiated solution about how it's all going to, uh, going to work when things are pacified a bit. But... Uh, yes, no, I, re I think um, the, the biggest powers at the moment have been Jaish al-Fateh, which is al-Qaeda linked, and ISIS. Okay, well, I want to invite our listeners to be part of our conversation today. And uh, while we're talking through all of these issues, trying to get our heads around the complexities of what's going on in the Middle East, you might like to contribute to our conversation uh, in uh, any way. You might have your own uh, thoughts you might have your own insights into what's going on in the Middle East. You might also uh, have some 
sense of how Christian believers can pray through the crisis that's going on, the crisis that faces the whole world, which is being played out on the stage in the Middle East right now as we speak. 1-800-316-316. You might like to join our conversation. How do you pray? Uh, for this crisis in the Middle East. 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth, stay with us. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment because I want to ask you about one of the most controversial things that's happening in the Middle East, and that is the entry of Russia into the situation. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil Johnson with you. It is 2020. Our talkback line open on one. 1-800-316-316, talking about Syria, talking about the Middle East. You might have your own thoughts on how Christian believers should pray for the crisis in the Middle East. 1-800-316-316 is our number. 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, is our guest. Elizabeth, let me ask you about the most controversial aspect of what we can see in the Middle East of recent times, and that is the entry of Russia into the Middle East. Now, just uh, picking up a report uh, from Reuters uh, that was only posted just uh, hours ago, talking about Russian warplanes pounding Syrian rebels unaffiliated with Islamic State overnight and helping Moscow's ally Bashar al-Assad reclaim territory and dealing a fresh setback to the strategy of Washington and its allies. Uh, your thoughts on Russia and their, uh, and their inclusion in this conflict? Well, I actually believe that the, uh, the return of Russia... Uh, is going to be the very thing that will save the Syrians and the Alawites of Syria from genocide. Um, uh, the fact, the way things stood just a couple of weeks ago, or six weeks ago, and I've been following this very closely through my Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. So anyone who's been praying through Syria with my Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin would have been aware that our, that. At the time, as it became clear to Turkey and to Saudi Arabia, so the Sunni-Turkey-Arab axis, as it became clear to them that the nuclear deal with Iran was going to benefit Iran, unfreeze funds, uh, lift sanctions, and therefore empower Iran in the region, the Arabs realised that they had to act. So what happened was in uh, the beginning of this year, in February, uh, uh, the Turkish president and the king of Saudi Arabia got together and made a commitment to increase their uh, support for the Syrian rebels uh, so as to affect changes on the ground. They knew they had to get rid of Assad sooner rather than later because Iran was just going to get more powerful um, as, you know, as the sanctions kicked in and everything. So what, what you see immediately after that is the is a coalition is formed being led by al-Qaeda's al-Nusra Front, that's al-Qaeda's group in Syria, al-Nusra. Anra al-Sham is another massive al-Qaeda-aligned group and a number of other smaller groups, some of which are free Syrian army battalions and groups that have been armed and trained by the U.S., so they've now come together in an alliance and instead of working as little individual groups, they're all working together. They're being coordinated by Al-Qaeda 
and they managed they did it and they managed to uh, seize control of Idlib city in March which was huge that made Idlib city the second provincial capital to fall into the hands of rebels so ISIS held Raqqa and al-Qaeda held Idlib now when you hear talk in the media of um oh dear Russia's going against groups that are not IS they're bombing rebels that are you know American trained rebels well, well, the Russians are going after Jaish al-Fateh because Jaish al first and foremost at the moment, because Jaish al-Fateh is connected to the Turkish border and is pressing right down into Alawite heartland territory. They are launching rockets into the Alawite heartland. This is, these are the, this is the clan and sect of, of the government, Bashar al-Assad. So these are his people, his family that's being bombed. Uh, they're villages that are under attack. Not only that, but Russia has a naval base on the coast there, so it has a legitimate interest that it needs to defend. Um, so it's going after these rebels. And, of course, because the American Free Syrian Army battalions or the American armed and trained Free Syrian Army battalions are part of this al-Qaeda alliance, well, you know, <laughs> they're getting bombed too. But, you see that you don't get the whole story, I'm afraid, when you listen to the media. So, and uh, I really actually was, I thought um, uh, Lavrov was pretty interesting on the news the other day when he was asked about going after, uh, going after ISIS. He said quite correctly, he said, Russia has always said we will go after ISIS and other terrorist organisations. So that includes al-Qaeda. And he said, if it, and, and they said, well, how do you define terrorist then? And he said, if it looks like a terrorist, if it walks like a terrorist, if it talks like a terrorist, if it kills like a terrorist, it's a terrorist. Well, the question begs itself is that should we be embarrassed? I mean, where's Australia in all of this? Because we are allied to the United States. What you're suggesting is that the United States is allied to al-Qaeda working against IS. Now, is that too simple a way to put that? Have I, uh, have yeah, I taken us... They probably have a little, there's a little bit, one of those little links in between that gives you deniability, you see. So, so, so the US is arming and training rebels, uh, free Syrian army battalions and little uh, other groups, very small groups. And, uh, those groups, so they say, well, we've got clean hands. We're only giving our arms to guys we trust. But those guys then turn around and are allied to Al Qaeda. So it's, it's an exercise in duplicity, really, to say that we're not allied to al-Qaeda, but, but they sort of aren't. It's a sort of an indirect link, but it's there it's, and it's real. And to try and deceive us, the people who listen to the news, the, the electorate, to try and deceive people that this is not all part of an al-Qaeda faction is uh, pretty poor, I, I think. And uh, yeah, there's quite a lot that's coming out at the moment that really uh, is quite distressing. I, I heard, I think it was John Kerry recently saying, oh, Russia's in there bombing its own people. But uh, everyone who follows this conflict knows that the, there are many, many Chechen rebels uh, fighting for, in Syria for the jihadists. Not only are there many Chechens, but many of them are actually the fiercest fighters that are that are around they are known as the fiercest fighters 
Many of them are the leaders of, of jihadist battalions because they were trained by the Soviets. They've got experience and training in the Soviet army and they are mature, seasoned generals, a general, you know, mujahideens. So, yes, uh, he probably is attacking uh, some Chechen battalions. There's a number of Chechen uh, battalions actually fighting in Syria, so he'd be quite quite keen to go after them, I would expect. And it's not exactly a case of, you know, cruel dictator bombing his own people. There's a lot of propaganda going around out there. Well, 1-800-316-316, you might have your own thoughts on how, as a Christian believer here in Australia, you should be praying for that crisis in the Middle East. 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Sue is in Katanning in Western Australia. Hello, Sue. Welcome along to 2020. Hi. Hi, Sue. What are your thoughts on our discussion? It's very confusing. There's never been Mm. peace in the Middle East. And just read Revelations and... God said it's going to be like this and we can just pray as Christians and hope that more people out there will turn to Christianity because it's the only way we're going to fight hatred. I, I agree. And anyone out there that kills people and harms people, they don't have the Lord in their lives. Yeah. So let's just all get together as Christians and pray for this world because I won't listen to the news. It's so sickening, but it's here in Australia. It's everywhere. And, you know, I'm just waiting for Jesus to come again. There will always be hatred on this earth when you've got believers and non-believers. Elizabeth, your thoughts on what Sue is sharing? Yes, thank you, Sue. And uh, this is what my whole ministry is is, uh, focused on and geared towards, is trying to bring the church together in prayer for his people because God saves his people by grace through faith. So we pray in faith and we wait for God to act in in grace and we seek his guidance in, in all that we do. And, you know, Christians in the Middle East at the moment are really, really hurting. Uh, They're in uh, deep emotional pain by the way in which the West, they feel that the West has betrayed and abandoned them. Uh, So I think that the Western church uh, really could do a lot to, um, I think, help heal uh, help heal divisions in the in the body of Christ by really reaching out to our our Eastern brothers and sisters, because they have been betrayed and abandoned by uh, Western policy. There's no doubt about that. So I, I would love to see churches really taking this up as a prayer issue, and to take it up as an aid issue as well, and find ways that they can get uh, funds and support into the churches of the Middle East that are bearing this incredible burden of caring for hundreds and thousands of displaced Assyrians. Sue from Katanning, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. You might like to participate in our conversation, 1-800-316-316, asking how do you think uh, we should be praying for the crisis in the Middle East? And uh, given what we've been hearing from Elizabeth Kendall, well, if the Christians are taken out, how will those prayers that uh, Sue from Katanning would like to pray and and uh, to see people come to Jesus Christ, how will people come to Christ if there's no witness there, if the Christians have been annihilated, if the Christians have been forced out of Syria and the Middle East? You might like to join our conversation, our telephone number 1-800-316-316. We're taking calls. Our special guest this hour is Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. And Elizabeth, so intensely interested in what's going on there in the Middle East, persecuted Christians. She also serves as Director of Advocacy at the Canberra-based 
Christian Faith and Freedom. It's Neil with you, 2020. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, religious liberty analyst, and we're looking at issues in the Middle East, specifically today, talking about Syria. The new developments with Russian troops on the ground, Russian bombers in the air. And they're not just targeting Islamic State, they're also targeting those rebels that are trying to remove Bashar al-Assad as leader in Syria. But what we don't always appreciate is that there is American backing for some of those rebel groups that are trying to uh, remove Bashar al-Assad. And, of course, caught in all of the conflict and uh, a tremendous way to illustrate knowing that there are multi-layers of this conflict that are going on in Syria. Well, our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316 asking you what you think you should pray for for this crisis in the Middle East. Uh, let me ask, you might have uh, some thoughts on uh, can the world trust the Russians? Uh, what are your perceptions about the United States, about the Russians, about Australia's role in the co- coalition in Syria? Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, all of these things very complicated. Christians caught uh, like the meat in the sandwich. Uh, there's all this debate that goes on as to uh, whether Christians should be leaving or staying. Should they be out of the conflict or should they be uh, supported to remain in the conflict zone? I know you spend a lot of time talking through this sort of issue. Yeah, I find this this is a deeply painful debate. It's it's really painful, and it's uh, not something that anyone should enter into very lightly because it is deeply painful. Uh, as everyone would understand, if you're a young, if you're a family, you know, mum and dad, and you've got young children, you're stuck in the middle of a war zone. You're you know a displaced person living in a you know, in a in a tent in somewhere, then you want to get out. You want to get out and you want your children to have a better life. And there are many families that really do need actually to be rescued out of the Middle East. They've got families in Australia and Canada and they can come here, they can be supported, they can be integrated and it would all work very, very well. But as you would also understand, uh, the Christian leaders of the Middle East are desperate for them to stay. And, you know, they're not desperate for them to stay because they want their own little fan club. This is not a small thing. They are, these people have given their hearts for the church. They look after, they look after properties that are, you know, nearly 2,000 years old that has had worship, you know, going on in them for, for you know, nearly 2,000 years. They are pastors. They are the shepherds of Christ's flock, and they're just watching everyone disappear. And of course, they've been forced to abandon many of this, many of their properties, and now they're watching as their flock, the people that they love, as they they die from you know treatable diseases and and injuries, as they uh, you know suffer terrible hardships, and now more than ever as they pack up and leave. And I've collected some really uh, sad, sad letters from Christian leaders. Um, the Greek patriarch Gregorius III published an open letter not too long ago in which he described a, a, a tsunami of youth immigration uh, from the Christian news and he says the almost communal wave of youth immigration, especially in Syria but also in Lebanon and Iraq, it breaks my heart. It wounds me deeply. It has dealt me a deadly blow. He says, given this tsunami of immigration, what future is left for the church? 
And, and then he, he continues and he says, my dear young people, please um, exercise patience. Despite your suffering, stay. Please be patient. Don't immigrate. Stay for your church. Stay for your homeland. Stay for Syria. And, you know, I just... It, these things deeply move me. I find it very moving and very sad. And in this particular letter, he points out to the young people that uh, Christians in the region have been suffering like forever. And he says, you know, even in the, in the in 1860, when the, there were those pogroms in Damascus, and the Christian community was almost completely wiped out, and the churches were burned, and you know, thousands of Christians were killed. He said, we stayed and we rebuilt, and now we have nine churches in Damascus. But you see, the difference today is that in 1860, the Christians who lived in Damascus had been dimmies, that is, second-class citizens, for centuries. So they were the poorest of the poor. They really didn't have a lot of option. Whereas the Christians today have lived in a secular Syria for, for decades and they're actually, they have means to leave. So they have options. Leaving is possible and they are leaving and uh, it's breaking the hearts. One thing that I've really noticed as I've been monitoring the Christian crisis in the Middle East, something that I have noticed as a, a phenomenon inside this conflict has been in town after town, village after village, city after city, no matter what happens, the priests don't leave. The nuns, the priests, they don't leave. So the able-bodied Christians will flee to safety. They'll flee to the big cities for safety and refuge. But the elderly and the frail and the infirm and the disabled that can't flee, they're stuck there as ISIS or or al-Qaeda come in and the priests stay with them all the time it's just they are amazing I have been so amazed they always stay and you know I don't think they they are receiving the uh, the honor that they deserve from the church at large they stay with their people they're nearly always kidnapped and the first ones to be kidnapped tortured and beheaded and everything when ISIS comes in but they refuse to leave their people. They'll stay with them right, right until the end. And, uh, you know, I think we really need to be talking seriously about how do we help these people. Is it possible? Is it really possible that instead of, you know, instead of supporting Shiites in Iraq and Sunnis in, in Syria, could we really actually support those people who are friendly to the West and who, who actually believe the same things we believe? and are our allies and have been our allies in the past, unlike, unlike some of our allies that are not really allies at all. Could we actually be supporting the Assyrians and the Kurds, uh, people who could uh, really actually create a, a good future and secular government, and the Alawites in, uh, in the heartland of, of Syria? Should we be supporting these people, supporting security for them so that they can stay and they can keep the education of their children, they can have security, they can have health care, and then maybe at some stage they might be able to move back into their towns and villages uh, when ISIS has eventually been defeated or, or rolled back. 
I just sometimes I wonder why is this question not on the table? And the Assyrian uh, Universal Alliance is pressing really hard for it to, for there to be a recognised Assyrian autonomous province in northern Iraq in the Nineveh Plain, which is the, just the very core heartland of the Assyrian nation. It's all under ISIS control at the moment. Well. But, uh, you know, to actually, why can't we fight for something good like this? You know, why are we sort of so messed up with fighting other people's battles for them when we can actually fight for something that is really good? Yes, well, there are a lot of messed up people obviously making the decisions and uh, inviting listeners to be part of our conversation we're going to take some calls in just a moment Uh, but you know I can identify with those things that you're saying and just to reinforce what you're saying Elizabeth because you might recall that uh, just on 12 months ago I had a wonderful privilege to go to the Middle East Mm. and was uh, in Lebanon right on the border uh, with, uh, with Syria and actually sat in refugee camps Uh, with those refugees who'd flooded out of Syria across the border into Lebanon and were living in tents in tent cities. And uh, just to experience uh, their hospitality was wonderful and uh, wonderful to be able to reflect their stories. But another thing that happened while I was there was able to actually meet uh, some of the pastors uh, who were working in churches in Syria. And pastors who who came with uh, with their own stories of uh, of you know going to a counselling situation and someone draws a knife uh, of uh, the people in their congregations who've suffered bombings yeah. uh, and uh, the things that they have dealt with uh, just uh, these are truly the most courageous Christians. Uh, who decide to stay because they are called by God to be in the ministry role that they have, and they are real champions of the faith. Amen. Uh, look, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's uh, take some quick calls here. Let's hear from Russell in Slacks Creek. Hello, Russell. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. How are you? Good, um, Russell. I was watching a documentary a few months back on television, and... Uh, Minute I seen it, I, can't, I knew uh, was talking about pollution and radioactivity and all that. And the minute I heard it, I knew it was in Revelation, and it's Revelation eight, seven to eleven, and it talks about the seals being broken, the sea becoming dead man, one third of the part of the living in the sea dying, the men and all that, and. All around England, it's all polluted with radioactivity stuff and near Europe and all that. And I thought the situation's a lot worse than what we know it is. And the only thing I can come to with what you're saying is, Lord, forgive them for what they've done and repent and heal Malene and bring in revival. That's, that's all you can pray with all the situation going on. Yeah, we're going to pray for revival. Russell, thanks so much for your thoughts and comments there. And, you know, it doesn't take much when you read those things that you can read in the Bible to uh, to be able to align so many of those things with what might be happening in the world today. At 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to be part of our conversation, let's hear from Craig in Coomera in Queensland. Hello, Craig. Welcome along. Hello, guys. How are you? Good, Craig. Hi. What are your thoughts? Um, well, my thoughts don't really matter a great deal. Uh, my question is, is there any similarities to be drawn between what ISIS is doing over there and what the Nazi uh, regime did in, in the late 30s and 40s? I mean, the, uh, 
you know, the effect it's having on people. And I mean, is it, is it a very similar type of thing? Uh, Elizabeth. Uh, I would say there are similarities, which is why you quite often hear people referring to uh, uh, Islam, fundamentalist Islam, as a fascist doctrine. Um, uh, it is uh, it is really fascist to the core. Uh, it's extreme right wing doctrine. Uh, you will be Muslim, and you will be nothing else. Um, uh, in places like uh, Karyatin and other places where Islam have taken over there. Uh, you, you may be, as I said, you may be Islam, but nothing else. So it's very similar and very cruel, and they're annihilating people. And yes, I've, I've heard many people draw parallels between what the Nazis were doing and what uh, Islam has been doing. And I think people need to realise that the degree to which Islam is a political ideology, it's a, um, it's a political ideology with a religious element. It's not as much, a, it's not so much a religion. Uh, a faith as Christianity is. It really is very much a political ideology like communism and like fascism. So, yeah, there are many similarities. Thank you so much uh, for your call, Craig, from Coomera. And just reflecting, too, on that recent controversy when Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister, uh, when uh, some of his comments were misconstrued, uh, comparing uh, Islam with Nazis. And, of course, the Jewish community was up in arms uh, because what happened with the Nazi Holocaust against the Jews was on a scale far, 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 far greater than what we have even seen in the Middle East at this time. So uh, uh, just to bring some context there. Uh, taking calls, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take a call from Brian in Albany in WA. Hello, Brian. Welcome along. Hi there, it's Hello. Brian speaking. Yes, Brian, what are your thoughts? Um, all I'd like to say first, hallelujah for Elizabeth Kendall. Thank you. I say uh, the same thing every time we talk. Yes. <laughs> Thank um, you, Brian. What I'd like to say, Elizabeth, in our church, and I would think it's, it's all around, that there's a silence for support of the Christians in the Middle East. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts on that silence? Well, there, yes, there's too much silence. And I think one of the reasons why there is silence is uh, it, I think people get very comfortable in their status quo. So they've been having a very nice time at church for a long time, uh, singing hymns that they really enjoy and meeting people they really enjoy and it's all a very nice time, a celebratory time and the mood is always good and always high and so there's a real reluctance to pick up these issues that are very challenging, very complex, uh, very lamentable, uh, stories that make you want to cry, uh, calls to put your hand in your wallet and actually... Uh, you know, show that you have faith by your works. Um, there's a real reluctance to actually to get out of our comfort zone. But you know, I think it's actually wonderful that Christianity deals with uh, life where the rubber hits the road, uh, and that it is serious business. I think we've got into this idea that prayer is just sort of some little traditional hobby we have. It's a bit of our duty that we do. It's part of the program. And we forget that it's really serious business. It is serious, serious business. And Christians should be engaged with the issues of the world 
they should be active supporting their brothers and sisters and they should be in prayer and engaged in the serious business of coming into the courts of the Lord. And sometimes I think if churches would really embrace this, they might actually give a whole lot of Christians who are just sitting on the fringes real reason to re-engage with their faith at a whole new level. I don't think it's something churches need to be afraid of. I think it's something churches should really embrace. I think a lot of Christians, if they had the chance, would love to engage in this issue. Brian from WA in Albany, thanks so much for your input today on 2020. Let's hear from Jonathan in WA. Jonathan, we need to be fairly quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, uh, my, my mind is, uh, you know, I've been to the country where we there were war for 15 years, from Coast to Guinea to the other places. So mm-hmm. to use air bombing, it is not easy because those who are Christians living in the area, they can be greatly affected. And looking at what is happening in the Middle East, it is only the Christian to really be in prayer. And the second thing, try to uh, negotiate with the international air bombing will not help. Look at what you are talking about. America is supporting the rebel to yeah. remove the leader. And the other fashion coming, they play another, I don't know. Supporting the the people, it will cause really damage in the in the Middle East. So what we need to do to tell the leader to negotiate with one another and try stop air bombing and bring a negotiation on the table to bring peace in the Middle East. Instead of because the Christian is still there, it will not be easy with them. Some of them will die. Yeah, it is good for them to stay. Some of them will build a church again. They okay. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for your input today. Appreciate your call here on 2020. Let's time time for one more call from Ruth in Queensland. Hello, Ruth. Welcome along. What are your thoughts? Yes, I think it's, it's very, very important to care for the world. And I also believe it's very, very important to care for our own backyard in Australia and the great needs in this land with uh, the shocking homelessness that's going on all over the nation and it's not getting any better. And people are at risk of being murdered, of being stabbed, of being attacked. I don't think people are seriously seeing the great need and the great need for housing and families sleeping in cars and people that are desperate and losing jobs and... I think we also, uh, uh, generosity is one of part of Christianity, but we need to be generous. It's like having a family and neglecting your family and going out and looking after everyone else. Ruth, uh, great thoughts. Day, uh, some interesting ones in there and, uh, you know, reflecting what a lot of people feel too about Australia's involvement in the Middle East. Uh, so far as it goes militarily, there's problems at home. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, a uh, very quick thought on what Ruth says. Oh, I agree, absolutely. Of course we need to be uh, concerned about what's happening in our own country and I think we need to see that our brothers and sisters in Christ as very much part of our own family uh, as well. So, um, you know, I think uh, one thing that we need to do in Australia is we just the church needs a revival. We need to revive the church. There needs to be a, a greater understanding in society about the value of biblical Christianity. At the moment, uh, Western society is is uh, blasting out its foundations, its Christian foundations, and thinking it can live without Christianity. But it's going to find that that's not going to hap- not going to happen. And there's going to be more violence. There's going to be more homelessness. There's going to be more people being cruel to each other and selfish. 
and things are not going to get better by getting rid of Christianity. It's not an evolution like people think it is. It's a, it's a big step backwards. And the church really has to take the lead in this. Okay, thank you to Ruth from Queensland for your input on 2020 and we won't be able to take any more calls. In fact, uh, running super short of time. Elizabeth Kendall, uh, just so good to be able to hear your thoughts, to hear your heartbeat and that encouragement that always comes in our conversations where you encourage people to get on their knees in the mm-hmm. courts of the Lord uh, to bring about change. Uh, I heard this as a theme coming through our conversation that revival is needed in the Middle East. And, of course, uh, the idea of keeping Christians in the Middle East so that there could be some uh, discipleship and maturity when a revival does come. I mean, that's so, so important. Elizabeth, we have run out of time. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. Uh, Her book is called Turn Back the Battle and uh, anticipating a new book coming out in the new year. Looking forward to that, Elizabeth. And uh, uh, certainly appreciate your input today on 2020. Always love your insights. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me again, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.